Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Here's John, and he has appeared not just as a regular Old Testament prophet, which with, which what the people were familiar with, but, but he appears as the final prophet of the Old Covenant era, who is also bridging the gap to the New Covenant era, which Jesus is establishing. And this in and of itself is, is a unique calling, right? This makes his calling unique because there has never been, nor will there ever be, a prophet of God like this again, and one who has particularly been been called to be the forerunner of the Messiah, you see. He has come in the spirit of Elijah, and, and that's what's being referred to when Jesus says, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's referring to Elijah in that statement. And yet Jesus points out that his ministry is even greater than Elijah's ministry ever was because he was given the privilege of being the forerunner of Jesus, declaring his coming to all mankind. So, so we would look at that and say, so what is that characteristic of John? have to do with us obviously we're not going to get to do that in the same way well simple with all of the old covenant prophets leading up to and including john the spirit who is at the heart of that prophetic ministry that's taken place over those thousands and thousands of years was given as i said earlier to all of those people in measure right but but since john came the spirit has taken up resident not in just some of god's people but in all of God's people. It's not just that God would raise up a single man to be a prophet or a woman to be a prophetess, right? But he's put his spirit in all of us to be his vessels through whom he speaks to this world in all of God's people and, and not in a limited measure, but in a full and continual measure in our lives. That same spirit who dwelled powerfully in John and propelled him in his prophetic ministry now dwells in each and every one of you and me. Think about that for a minute. The spirit that was in John is now living in you. That's powerful stuff when you think about that. And all the time, he doesn't take a break. He doesn't go on vacation. He doesn't get pulled back. Even when you grieve him, he doesn't get removed. You know, David didn't have that reassurance, right? Because in Psalm 51, after his sin with Bathsheba, what does David pray? He says, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. You know, we used to sing that song. It's an old Maranatha song. And we used to sing that in the early days of Christianity here in the 70s and the, and the 80s. That was a popular song, but it's an unbiblically, it's a biblically incorrect song. Because under the new covenant, that spirit is never taken away from us as believers. Never. We can grieve the Spirit, we can quench the Spirit, but the Spirit will not be removed from us. He's our guarantee, He's our seal of our salvation, and He's the empowerment that comes. And quite frankly, I'm so grateful that even when I fail the Lord in sin, that the Spirit isn't taken from me because it is the Spirit who then helps me to stand back up and to overcome the sin and to begin to walk again. 
That's what we have dwelling in us. And when you think about this, like John, we've been given a unique calling to fulfill because our prophetic ministry involves being the forerunners of the second coming of Jesus, right? All of us. We get to go into all the world and to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with people, good news which prophetically deals with what? His return the culminating in his return and the establishment of his kingdom one day. And like John, we get the privileged ministry of calling men and women to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ so that they can be a part of what Jesus will be bringing to the earth when he comes. The fulfillment of this calling is something that should characterize our lives on this earth. It's what we should be about. It doesn't mean I got to run up and tell everybody I see on the street about Jesus, but it means I am a open vessel to be used by the Lord when he brings me to that right person in that right moment to be able to speak that word to them with boldness, as John would have done, and and directly and to know God's word to be able to share that with them, you see. As Paul declares, you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, we have a different term. You know, John was a prophet of God. Ours is a different term. Paul says in first or second Corinthians chapter five and verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. We're, we've gotten the spirit to be ambassadors for him as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And John three, three tells us we get to prophetically to declare truth to people. Right, John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you know what? When you speak that to people, you're speaking prophetically from the word. You're looking into people's lives and you're, you're, you're speaking to them. You're not foretelling, but you're foretelling the word of God to them and what is involved in becoming a believer. If, if, you, if, if you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and the truths of the future things described in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, and to tell people as Jesus told them, just as he said in Luke 21 and verse 31, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. There isn't a day right now that shouldn't go by that we shouldn't be saying that to people. We don't have to point to every event and say, well, that event and this is how it's going to work out. But we can just look at people and say, pick up your newspaper. Let's look at the, the, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Look at what it says when, when he was asked the questions, what will be the signs of your coming and your return? How will we know that the time is drawing near? And you can take somebody through that in a 10-minute Bible study and say, now go read your paper and tell me what you think. When you see these things happening, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. This is our calling as ambassadors, to lead them to Christ, to prophetically declare the truths that the scriptures have given us prophetically of his return. This is our ministry. And may this be the focus of our lives while we're here on this earth. Amen? So that's John, but look at what Jesus goes on to say in verse 28. He says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Interesting. Here Jesus tells them and us that as great as John the Baptist is, was, there are those who will become greater than he ever was in his life and in his ministry. Those, he says, in particular, who are the least in the kingdom of God. 
You know, like many who heard Jesus say this to them, those who held John in high regard, and, and there were people in this crowd. Remember, a lot of the people that Jesus is now talking to were drawn to John initially. These are probably people who came out when he was baptizing, may have even been baptized by him, not all of them. We're going to find that in this crowd are also the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the legalists of Israel, and they certainly didn't. They rejected that baptism. But at the same time, here's Jesus talking to this crowd, and, and I guarantee you there were, a, there were a number of people in this crowd who saw John in high regard. I mean, he was just a, an incredible figure to them. And, 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 and when they'd hear this, they probably wonder, well, how could that possibly be? How could somebody lesser than John be greater than John? And people today would say that as well. How could, how could I be greater or someone greater than John? Or even though John was a tremendous servant of God, he was not, remember this, he was not born again under the new covenant. Keep that in mind. John was not born again under the new covenant. He, did, he, he lived and he died before Jesus completed his work on the cross. The new covenant was not established until his blood was shed, right? It is the new covenant in my blood. We say that every time we take communion together, right? John was gone by the time Jesus went to the cross. And most certainly he was gone before Jesus was resurrected, which confirmed the covenant, which means that despite his greatness as a servant of the Lord, he never experienced or enjoyed the full benefits of the new covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that John will not enjoy salvation. He will, you know, because he lived by faith in God alone, and righteousness will be accounted to him just as it was to Abraham and to all the other Old Testament saints who lived by forward-looking in faith to God for their righteousness and not to their own righteousness. You know, Paul makes clear that righteousness was credited to the account of those who look by faith to the Lord for their righteousness, Abraham. Paul says in Romans 4, 3, in regard to Abraham, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That word accounted is an accounting term. It means it was credited. It was written in the book to his account. And it's through righteousness that we're able to see God. That's why the law could never do it for us, because we can never be righteous under the law by the keeping of the law, because we can't keep it perfectly enough to make ourselves righteousness to stand in the presence of God. We need a righteousness that doesn't come from ourselves. And so the Old Testament saints, like Abraham, they didn't know Messiah, but they trusted that God had a planned Messiah, a Savior, and they knew that ultimately that their righteousness could only come from God, and they looked forward to what God would do for them and through that, they will know, they do know the Lord. They are saved. The same with David. Uh, in Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Paul goes on talking about David. He says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Isn't it nice to know? that sin is not imputed to us when we put our faith in Jesus? The Old Testament saints could know that too. And this is the very premise of all that has been realized in the new covenant for us, that salvation isn't something that we earn, but something which God imparts to us as we look to him by faith alone. 
But the point is that as great a, as a man as John was, as great a prophet as John was, as great a servant as John was, he did not get to enjoy the fullness of this covenant that Jesus established after his life ended. But we do. But we do. And, and we are the least who are greater. We are the least who are greater that Jesus is referring to here because of what we've become under the new covenant, which he established. And, and we're seeing and we're experiencing greater things, the spiritual in our lives than John ever could have imagined possible. As much as he saw, he never could imagine what you and I have, the Spirit dwelling in a man continually, the gifts of the Spirit being produced in a woman continually, that God is present with them continually in this way. He didn't experience this in the same way that you and I get to. The righteousness alone, which Christ has imputed to us as new covenant believers, is something that John could never have fully comprehended, and yet it's ours through Christ. It's ours through Christ. But I, I hope you see that what makes us greater has nothing to do with us. You may be a great servant. I promise you, your service probably isn't anywhere close to what John's was. It's got nothing to do with you, but all to do with Jesus and what he's done with you and with me. He's made us greater. It's not our works or our service or our spiritual self-effort, but it's our changed hearts. It's our, it's, it's, and it's our born-again nature, you see? That makes it different, which Christ has wrought in us, that makes us greater than John. And, and, and it is these things that Christ has done in us through that born-again experience that he's brought into our lives under the new covenant that makes living out the things we've just discussed in those questions that should reflect our lives as well possible. It's because of what Jesus has done that enables us to walk out this righteousness, you see. We can live these characteristics that marked John's life in an even more powerful way through the power of Christ and what he's done in us. And even though, like Abraham, John has, has, has had righteousness credited to his account because of his faith in God alone, but John never had righteousness imputed to his life as you and I have had imputed to us under the new covenant and placing our faith in Jesus. We have something that the Old Testament saints, yeah, even John, that they longed for. We've got it. Sometimes I don't think we appreciate it enough, but when you're standing in John's shoes, I guarantee you would look and say, it's greater what they're about to have. You know, I think he knew that. He knew there was more coming. He knew what Messiah was coming to do. He just didn't get to see it and experience it. Well, look on. Goes on, verse 29 says, and when the people heard him, even the tax tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So simply put, the common people got what Jesus was saying, which is the case throughout the gospels, right? The common man or woman, man, they hear what Jesus is saying, and by and large, they're receiving it because nobody's talked to him this way. Right? And included them in things in the same way. But the Pharisees, the lawyers, the spiritual leaders, they didn't. They didn't. Oh, it's not that they didn't understand. It's that they simply rejected what Jesus was saying. They didn't, it didn't measure up to what they believed. They didn't want this. Their refusal to even submit to John's baptism and repentance indicated that they had no desire to seek any form of spirituality that had nothing to do with themselves. 
They had to be a spirituality of their own. They wanted to be the determiners of their own spirituality. They didn't want any form of spirituality that made them dependent on anyone other than themselves, even dependency on God. And sadly, again, there are a lot, (laughs) a lot of people in our world today who are like this. And the vast majority of them consider themselves to be religious. That's the crazy part. They think they're religious, but the system of religion that they ascribe to is self-developed, self-focused, self-determined, self-empowered form of religion. And that doesn't work. You know, but the problem is because of that way of believing, Jesus' ideas as expressed in the scriptures, it's foreign to them. As foreign to them as it was to the Pharisees and the scribes, because they want no part of it. And yet, it's the only way, right? It's the only way. Righteousness will never be found in our works or in our religiosity. It's the core of the gospel message that tells us that the righteousness that we need can only be found in Jesus Christ and in our humble submission and dependence upon him. That's the core of the gospel. It's simple. It's not works-driven. It's belief-driven, right? It's not about how much you can do for God. It's about what you're willing to turn over to him, to depend upon him, to believe in what he's done for you. It is also simple, and yet so many people reject it and choose the more complex that they develop for themselves because they want to be the determiners of their spiritual future. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, Romans chapter 3, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Wow. Who gets included? Anyone who wants to believe. Anyone. Oh, you mean that, that, that drunk down the street? Anyone who wants to believe. You mean that homosexual that, that's been living that, that terrible lifestyle? Anyone who wants to believe, because God moves into the heart of that person and changes them from the inside out when they believe. He changes us from what we were into what we can become, but he does it. But it begins with belief. For there is no difference. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the justifier. God is the one that imputes righteousness. God is the one that changes the human heart. God is the one who changes the human behavior. God is the one who turns a sinner into, well, I don't know what the term would be, a non-sinner? I don't know that that's a good term, you know, but changes the sinner's heart, changes the leper's spots, right, as we sing in that old hymn. John the Baptist believed this. And he's been justified by faith, but he simply didn't live to see this covenant put fully into place and to experience the fullness of what it meant in his own life. But, but as I said before, you and I have. We, we not only know it, but hopefully you've experienced it. 
in your own life. And, and if we're willing to yield to it, that's what makes you and me who are the least even greater than John. What a blessing we have in Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll look on at verse 31. It says, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? So having drawn attention to John and using the description of John's character as a backdrop, Jesus now begins to contrast the attitudes and the character of the unbelieving world, especially of those who are resisting and rejecting him, most especially drawing a contrast with those who see themselves as having things together spiritually like the Pharisees and the scribes do and the vast majority of the spiritual leadership of Israel did and those who were following him. And although John may have been dealing with a a crisis of faith and dealing with some doubts as a result of his situation and, 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 and the wearing effect it was having upon him, John was in no way, like these people were, John was in no way rejecting or resisting Jesus. John raised questions, but he never did that with the intent of discrediting Jesus in his own heart. He just wanted and needed spiritual reassurance. And answers. I hope you understand that God is not troubled by your doubts, and he is not troubled by your questions when you're asking him with a sincere motive. What I mean by that is that, as I pointed out last week, our doubts and questions, they're a normal part of our life, right? It's a normal part of, of being a fallen human being in a fallen world, because even on our best days, we can't see things spiritually clearly, let alone see things clearly in the midst of wearying difficulties that we're in the midst of. Remember what Paul says about our spiritual understanding, having limiting constraints as a result of our fallen humanity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Do you ever feel like you're looking in a mirror dimly when it comes to spiritual things? Some days there's such great clarity, and some days it's just like, so tell me again who you are, (laughs) Jesus. Tell me more about what you've done. You know, I I get it, but my mind's having a hard time wrapping around it. it. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. Paul is simply saying that in the constraints of our human flesh, that although we might have moments of tremendous clarity, Most of the time, we have an obscure and imperfect vision of spiritual realities. Our understanding about God and about the things of God can be can be hazy at times. It can be cloudy at times. We can have weak faith. We can have doubts that that arise out of these things. These things aren't in and of themselves spiritual disqualifiers, but they are simply realities of our fallen human flesh, which God is fully aware of. You know, I'm always encouraged by passages that I come to, in particular in the Psalms, where it just tells us what God knows about us. Because it just gives comfort in that. I mean, I think of Psalm 78 and verse 39, which reassures us that God knows our human weakness and inability to see clearly all the time. Psalm 78 verse 39 says, For he remembered that they were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. He remembers what we are, right? Or Psalm 103, verse 14, where we're told, Psalm 103, verse 14, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I am so glad that he knows my frame and remembers it. Not just knows it, but he remembers it. When my doubts arise and my faith is weak, and I want to believe, I have a hard time believing, 
I'm so grateful that he knows this about me. And yet we also know that God has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can more and more to come to know his mind and his workings and to see more clearly as we learn to depend upon him by faith, right? As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 through 16, First two, uh, First Corinthians 2, verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? Because we have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, opening our hearts to it. And yet, the failure of our flesh doesn't negate the reality of what Paul is saying here in this passage, that if our faith is in Christ, we do have God's Spirit dwelling in us, enabling us to see more clearly, and yet in our flesh, we can far too often limit the Spirit's ability to give us that clarity. Our human flesh simply gets in the way of the Spirit's ability to work at times. Bad flesh, right? Praise God, he's going to transform it one day completely. But God knows that, and and, and he doesn't hold that to our account. He remembers that we're but flesh, and he knows our frame, and that we're dust. And I just am personally grateful for that reality. I don't know about you, but I mean, me personally, I am so grateful for that. And yet I do not, nor should any of us want to use that as an excuse. Well, it's just my flesh. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.